Honestly, I think I, I think within the field of Filipino American psychology, because there's so few of us um, who who have you know become psychologists, especially or who are doing research um, on psychological issues, uh, I think we work so collectively well together. Hey, Dustin. Hey, Crystal. Hey, Mesearchers. You're listening to the Mesearch Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Dustin Domingo. And I am Crystal Tugatti. On this show, we have critical, messy, and fun conversations with each other, with friends, and with leaders in the community. Together, we'll unpack important issues, learn, and unlearn what we think we know about what it means to be Filipino. Today on the show, we're talking about the growing field of Filipino-American psychology. And our guest for this episode of MeSearch is a distinguished professor of psychology at both John Jay College of Criminal Justice and Graduate Center at the City University of New York. He received his doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University in New York City and is one of the leading researchers in understanding the impacts of microaggressions on the mental and physical health of people of color, LGBTQ people, and other marginalized groups. He literally wrote the textbook on Filipino-American psychology called Filipino-American Psychology, y'all. <laughs> Researchers, <laughs> welcome Dr. Kevin Nadal. Woo! Welcome. Hi everyone. Thank you. Hi, Crystal. Hi, Dustin. Thank you for having me. Um, quick story. I was there at your book, um, book release in Long Beach many, many, many moons ago. Um, no I forget where we were. Um, but we, I think we were somewhere in Long Beach. Not like a bar restaurant. Yeah, yeah. A restaurant bar filter owned, maybe. Yeah, and I sang right before you came on to talk and (laughs) i wrote one of or i sang one of my super sad 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 songs about a breakup and just not wanting to do anything and resign to life or resign resign from life and then you came on you're like damn See the connection between suicidal ideation and like oh no did i say that It was, it was, it was funny. I, I think that you delivered that line. It was like kind of funny. It was funny. Um, it was, it was a okay. well done kind of cross from my sad song to yeah. this empowering message that you had. <laughs> oh, I but, hope it was funny. Uh, yeah, it was funny. Yeah, but it sounds like it was a good, a good uh, segue into talking about mental health issues and talking about how we all can be sad and and recover and heal and do all the things that uh, we need to do whenever we go through something that's hard and traumatic. Absolutely. Yeah, it really made me think twice about like how I use my words and like how actually sad I was, which eventually led me to therapy. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that connection. Thank you for that story, Crystal. Um. Yeah, it was an honor to uh, sing before um, you spoke, and it's an honor to have you again here on the show. And uh, yeah, let's get into it. So when I first met you, or when I first was able to uh, witness your work, I was like, oh shit, I did not know that I should be thinking about my brain, 
like my experiences in in this way. Um, so we want to ask you why it is so important to include Filipino American perspectives in the field of psychology. Yeah, thank you so much again for for having me on and uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about my work and especially about Filipino American psychology. Um, you know, just as you're talking about that book launch in Long Beach, that must have been in 2009 when the very first version of Filipino American psychology came out. Um, and, you know, just reflecting on that, uh, I'm thinking about how far we've come as a global Filipino community and even more specifically Filipino American community when it comes to talking about mental health. You know, that was only 14 years ago. And I don't know if you remember back then, but 14 years ago, like, nobody really wanted to talk about mental health. It was such a mm -hmm. taboo, stigmatized conversation. Um, and then here I am, this guy who wrote a book on Philip American psychology, touring all over the U.S. and, you know, basically like telling people we have to talk about these issues um, and generally received well. But for a lot of folks, like to your point, just, you know, maybe we haven't thought about this before or maybe like I didn't realize that these concepts in psychology or in the mental health field relate to me in, in some way or affect my life in some way. Um, I have a lot of funny stories from that book tour because, um, yeah, it was just wild. Like there were like Lola's who were like, they would raise their hand and then they would say like, I want to talk about grab mentality. And then I'd be like, all right, Lola. And then they would be like, because I've been the victim of grab mentality from someone in this room. Oh, oh <laughs> damn! Drama. The drama. <laughs> it was drama. It was kind of amazing. Um, but then, like you know, then they're also talking. Then a different person would say, like, "And I have depression, and I'm dealing with it." And you know, it was really like cathartic, um, and you know, very reflective. And you know, this is why it was. This is why it was so important for me. To, to do this work because I knew that those stories were out there. You know, I knew it not just through my research, but just anecdotally. Like I have so many stories of people who I know had undergone so many different um, issues related to mental health. Um, but even on top of that, that all these other factors from identity to colonial mentality to just group dynamics, those are all also included in psychology. Um, that people don't realize that that's psychology that's happening. So as a real like tangential, long-winded way of answering your question, you know, it's important for us to have these conversations because they they are so part of our community and family dynamics, but often just aren't talked about. And so just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean that they don't exist or affect our lives. And so we have to uh, initiate these conversations. Sometimes these really hard conversations um, because otherwise we're being impacted and aren't really realizing how these concepts are, are affecting our lives and, and even how many of us are even suffering as a result of the stigma that still occurs when it comes to mental health. Mm. Yeah. Is there something that um, guided you to looking into mental health for us Filipinos, like specifically for you? Yeah, you know, my journey, I, I would say that there are a couple things. Like, one is being a Filipino person yourself, like when you navigate the world, uh, especially for me back then in the 80s and 90s, um, sometimes just taking a step back and realizing like, okay, everything that I'm reading about the world, whether it be history or whether it be watching uh, American TV or movies, you know, I always felt like, oh, this this doesn't relate to my everyday life. 
or even that I could watch those things and kind of pretend that that those things related to me or I can get lost in some of those worlds and universes, um, but then still come home to my Philip American family that was never represented in my my textbooks, my reading materials, or my uh, the media that I consumed. Um, and so I think for that, um, that was like a big part of like why I even wanted to give voice to Filipino Americans in general, because I just knew that that was missing from my experience. Um, and I also, you know, started taking psychology classes. And in my psychology classes, you know, I started to, to say like, this may not apply to things in my life, or these things might apply, but not really, or it's different, it's nuanced. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, shifts or even just awakenings for me uh, was when I started to take uh, these classes at UC Irvine. I was an undergrad in psychology and uh, they had these multicultural psychology classes and they covered the different um, racial ethnic groups. So there was an African-American psychology class, a Latino psychology class, and I took this Asian American psychology class. And, uh, you know, it was a class that covered requirements for both psychology and, you know, ethnic studies. And um, when I took that class, I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is stuff that actually applies to me. But because it was general Asian American psychology, a lot of the things still didn't apply to me. Um, and a lot of those materials were still very East Asian centered. Um, and so then as an undergrad student, uh, you know, a light bulb went off and I said, okay, well, maybe that's something I could do. Maybe I can start to contribute to Filipino American psychology. Um, and so that's what I did, you know? So that's like the, like the answer that like makes the most sense. And then the other thing that I'll just like shout out is like, sometimes I also think the ancestors guide you to where you need to be. Hmm. Um, and, mm. you know, as I even share that little snippet of, you know, my journey, I was like, that was like a 19, 20 year old, punk ass kid studying school you know in school but there was someone who was whispering that you know you should go into psychology or that there needs to be more research on this you know so I never like take credit like that you know I did this all on my own but rather that I feel in a lot of ways the ancestors whether it be my own or general Filipino ancestors or just others who have paved the way so that I could do these sorts of things. And then in, in that way, even shouting out like my ethnic studies classes, professors who open the doors to say like, this is something you can do, um, which then, you know, began my journey as an academic and as a, a psychologist. Having been in the field of psychology for you, in the many years that you've had the had this be your career, is there anything that you've learned or uncovered, or maybe like solidified in the data about um, the Filipino American experience or like the Filipino American uh, psychology? Anything that you've learned that is surprising, perhaps? Hmm. I mean, I think there are a lot of things I've learned as I had started. At- the you know research program that I had in Filipino American issues um until now. I mean, I think earlier, like my my first real published paper was on Filipino American ethnic identity. And I think that was, you know, my kind of starting point um where I started to feel like this was the path I wanted to go into. Um and it was 
uh, really describing the ways that Filipino Americans may have a unique uh, ethnic identity development than any other racial or ethnic group because of our unique histories of colonialism, our phenotype and how people perceive us racially, um, and you know our experiences within even the Asian American community. Um, and so when I started to write about that, um, it started to be really uh, rewarding to hear other people uh, give me feedback that, you know, you're speaking to my experience or this is something that's so um, uh, relatable and validating and I feel seen and heard and all those things. Um, and uh, with, with that area of research, what was really beautiful for me was um, it, it, it paralleled like my uh, my journeys through various Filipino American communities. You know, I was born and raised in California. I moved to, um, to I was born in Northern California. I moved to Southern California for college. I then moved to Michigan for my master's degree and then to New York um, for my doctorate. Um, but within every Filipino American community, there are lots of, you know, unique differences between all the different groups, but there there is a through line. There is a, a sense that of, of uh, commonality across these different groups because of those experiences with uh, racial discrimination and microaggressions and phenotype and colonization and all those things that 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 became something that was really rewarding to see that no matter where you were in the U.S. you could relate to some of the things that I wrote about um in some ways um and then I think from there is when I I wanted to write you know more comprehensively about Filipino American psychology and mental health issues, um, and so I, you know, was inspired by a lot of the work by uh, Dr. Lenny Strobel and and my friend and brother E.J. David, who were writing about colonial mentality and the effects of colonization on our psyches. Um, and so that was a huge thing. Um, and then I started to unpack things like group dynamics and crab mentality and intersectional identities. Um, but the the thing that is always been like one thing that I hope people always talk about is our mental health issues and the stigmas that come across and what I've learned that's always been um, so fascinating is um, how mental health uh, problems symptoms may manifest amongst Filipino Americans and how uh, many how many times those uh, experiences with mental health issues um, are so unique to Filipinos that they differ from what may manifest among other people of color, among other Asian Americans. Um, and, you know, it's it's sad a lot of times because uh, that unique experience, which is common to many Filipinos across uh, the U.S., is, is often not talked about and is even um, something that many uh, practitioners don't even know about, which then means our communities aren't being served. Um, and so that's something that has always been um, both surprising and just also really sad that, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these things continue to to affect our communities. And yet um, we're not really talking about it. Mm. I think that is yes, because I so I got it. I really got to credit like my my first interaction with you and your book to like opening up my my heart and my soul and my brain to like mental health and what that is again like did not know and so i started in therapy with like old white men yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was 
awful. It was fucking uh, awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, just like, oh yeah, I know your experience. I I have a lot of nurse friends who would bring me Olivia. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so. I was with like therapists for like a really long time until I was like, I need to talk to someone Filipino. Like, right. are there any Filipino therapists out there? And I finally found one and I've been with this therapist who I had a session with earlier today. Um, I, I've been with this wonderful Filipino woman who just like gets it. And um, it's just so, refreshing and rewarding and amazing to like feel like my the way that my brain works and my body works is seen right. and understood by someone who can help me navigate through colonization and all the things that plague yeah. our our community so um yeah it's just so interesting is there something that you've seen from like when you started with your your first book and up to to now how mental health has changed within our yeah. community since the beginning of your time I, I actually have these conversations more recently a lot because uh because of how um very uh visible and uh like obviously present there are people who are trying to promote mental health awareness within our communities. You know, if you just go on Instagram, there are at least, you know, 10 Filipino American folks with huge followings who talk about mental health issues. And if not Filipino American, Asian Americans or people of color. Um, and, you know, they're really uh, leading uh, a lot of the, these conversations or at least like planting um, many seeds for people to think about you know, the link between your ethnic, cultural, racial identity and uh, your experiences of mental health or even more specifically your experiences with therapy. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of these folks, like I've met, had the honor of meeting them throughout the years. And, um, you know, a lot of them will, will give credit to people like me or EJ and um, Lenny Strobel. And I, I'm always happy to receive, you know, those, those kind words. Um, and then I'll call EJ and I'll say, like, can you imagine, like, when in 2009, when we were first talking about these issues, like, uh, it wasn't that it was not well received, but it was definitely new, you know, and no one was having these conversations or people were like doing a lot of those, the, the thing that you do where you talk about your friend, but you're not talking about yourself. So they would like, you know, at like workshop, raise their hand, be like, I have a friend who's depressed. And you're like, girl, we know it's you. Um, but, like, but, but now it's like, the stigma is so different. You know, um, I remember very distinctly, like being at like, a, you know, these um, uh, like find conferences or like things like that, right? These like big college student conferences and talking about mental health and just saying things like, you know, so that's why everyone should be in therapy and, you know, raising my, or saying like, I'm even in therapy, raising my hand saying that. And, you know, students kind of looking at me like, like, what, really? He's talking about it? Like um, maybe even judging me in some ways. But now, like, you know, you just go into any, like, space with young philams, like, millennials and younger, and you say, who's in therapy? And everyone proudly raises their hand, you know, um, because the stigma has been so reduced. 
Um, not that it's gone, but that it's reduced. Um, and especially with younger generations, it's just so commonplace um, for people uh, to go to therapy, especially when they have uh, the access to resources. Um, the problem is that some people may have access to resources, but there are still so few Filipinx um, therapists who are out there. And so finding a good match might be more difficult for some folks. You know, even in places like L.A. or San Francisco or San Diego, where you presume huge Filipino populations, there should be like hella therapists out there. There really aren't. There might just be like a handful or two. And if we're talking about, you know, in any given community, hundreds of thousands of Filipinos um, and there's only five therapists, um, then that becomes really hard. Right. Um, but I do want to shout out uh, Dr. Therapinai um, and their uh, company site, Therapinex, um, where they have a, a, a list of Filipino-American therapists that you can look at. Um, and these are all, you know, licensed um, therapists or other practitioners um, who are Filipinex and who provide services. Um, and I know they try to work on like sliding scales and things like that for people who might um, not have access to insurance or to other resources, um, but they're out there. And, you know, like 10 or 15 years ago, like that conversation would have been so stigmatized. And now it's something that's just more normalized. And I still think there's work to do, but at least we're at a point um, where like, I know in my circles, like talking about therapy is like, talking about doing your laundry, you're going to get a haircut, you know, like, um, it's so common. And that stigma has been so significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think I, I think within the field of Filipino American psychology, because there's so few of us um, who, who have, you know, become psychologists, especially or who are doing research um, on psychological issues. Uh, I think we work so collectively well together. You know, um, in 2010, I believe, uh, Dr. E.J. Devin and I formed an organization um, within the Asian American Psychological Association called the, the Division on Filipinx Americans, DOFA is the acronym. Um, and, uh, and there were other people that were involved in that process uh, as well. People like um, Dr. Alvin Alvarez, Rochelle Concepcion, Steph Kituk, uh, and others. Um, Alicia Del Prado and others. And, uh, you know, we've created this space where all of us have different backgrounds, different Filipino American experiences, different, you know, intersectional identities and so forth. Um, but we're all working collectively to advocate for Filipino American mental health. Um, the organization has been around for 13 years, I guess. And, you know, now those original founders of the organization um, we're alumni. We don't do anything really with them anymore. And there's this mm. new generation of younger um, or, you know, beginning Filipino-American psychologists who are doing things like throwing conferences and uh, having seminars and workshops and, um, you know, just really doing their best to advance the national conversation on Filipino-American psychology. Um, and so, yeah, so I don't know if there are any criticisms, but I do want to shout out that when we do work collectively together um, and everyone has, you know, the goal, the the common collective goal of ensuring that we're serving our communities, like, you know, we, we do get more done, you know, and it's mm. never just that it's one person that's doing something, but rather that 
we're collectively working um, towards this goal. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just want to shout out like the current iterations of, of, of leaders, people like uh, Dr. Christine Capitone and um, uh, Greg Desierto, who's current, uh, Christine is the current president of the Asian American Psychological Association and, and Greg Desierto is the current chair of the Division on Filipino Americans. Um, we're, all, we're all doing our thing. And, you know, amidst all of the trauma in the world um, from the, the violence and genocide that's happening to the, the racial pandemic that we're still dealing with and anti-Asian violence and uh, people trying to silence us in uh, the classroom um, to, you know, just our everyday stressors as human beings. Um, we're all just doing our best to promote Philippine-American mental health. Can you speak a little bit about how your identity as a member of the LGBTQIA community has played into your development as a Filipino-American psychologist? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think one of the things that uh, I reflect on is that I'm so happy that I'm queer because I think if I wasn't queer or gay, um, that uh, my mind frame might have been a little bit different in terms of my commitment to social justice and so forth. Uh, what I mean by that is like, you know, I have so many of my family members who are my same age or similar age, gender, um, you know, grew up in the same types of social class and uh, immigrant uh, household. Yeah, I'm really into social justice and they're not. And one thing that I, um, I attribute to that is that growing up queer and Filipino has given me the lens of being able to recognize when something was wrong or unjust or inequitable and for me to want to have the voice to say that. Not to say that straight people can't do that, but I think sometimes when you have more privilege in, in the world, it could be easier to miss when things are unjust. It might be even easier to uh, avoid having to have hard conversations or to um, uh, you know fight against things that um, you deem to be uh, unjust or unfair and inequitable. Um, and so I think that's the first piece, is that having a queer identity has given me a lens to understand, um, in addition to my Filipino identity, my racial identity as a person of color, as a brown Asian person, um, it's just given me that insight to look at um, injustice and understand marginalized groups. Uh, I think on top of that, like I think, it's, it's given me empathy and the ability to, you know, always root for the underdog and to, you know, always try to um, want to, to advocate for people, push for people, even like empower people to be their best selves, uh, despite all the obstacles that they may have faced, right? And so I think that's a huge piece. Um, but even like reflecting on my queer identity, um, in relation to this journey of Philippine American psychology uh, is kind of interesting because, you know, at the time that I was coming up, I, you know, I, I had always been um, in my adult life, queer or, or gay. Um, and here I am coming out with this uh, Philippine American psychology work. And I think initially I thought that that might have been a hindrance to my message, um, especially for like older 
immigrant communities, lolas, lolos, titos, titas, um, that like my, me being gay or queer would uh, deter them from hearing my messages about Filipino American psychology or mental health. Um, and because of the fact that that was around the you know early 2000s to 2010s, um, and that was a time where same-sex marriage was still being debated on a regular basis, where people mm -hmm. still were openly being um, uh, harassed or discriminated against because of their LGBTQ identities. Um, and so I think that was a fear, but, but I actually experienced the opposite, that here I am, this 20 or 30-year-old talking about these issues, and I happen to be gay or queer, and uh, the titos the and titas, like, they they basically were like so welcoming and accepting you know um and and then i think like i was able to promote two messages at the same time and one was about mental health and psychology and then the other was about just opening their eyes that you can be a lgbtq person and still be uh kind and uh and warm and even smart and successful and all these things and so um yeah like i know for sure like that that period of time was really interesting and a lot of the conversations with a lot of elders um they would you know it, they would say things like oh and kevin by the way you know i i have a friend who's like you and i'll be like what does that mean that he's a gay like you and i'm like oh, okay and then they would say things like um but i support you and you know i i think everyone should have the right to be married and you know that was the big thing was about gay marriage or same-sex marriage um and that was like heartwarming right i think these days i'd be like well, why didn't you accept me already or why are you using in, in, incorrect language or you know all those things but at the time it was really really uh i really really rewarding or or even like um uh it's just it felt good just because it was like they were doing the work, which if you can imagine in 2009, for Sita to say that, to, to be pro-LGBTQ in her way or their way, you know, like, that's pretty groundbreaking, trailblazing, mm -hmm. pioneering. Um, and so, you know, I think I really helped me to realize that that I should be more open and not hide any part of my identity um, because, you know, you're you're able to uh, teach about so many other issues besides just the thing that you were doing research on at the time. Hmm. I appreciate that coming myself as a, a as a person to this conversation, a queer person to this conversation. Yeah. I have watched your career over the last several years and like read your work, and I'm like, dang, this guy's so cool. And I appreciate oh, following you on social <laughs> media, seeing how vocal you are about. LGBTQIA plus issues and framing other work adjacent to like you and your identity. Um, like it just makes me realize there's so much more that I can do as a queer person, aside from like accepting myself as, as who I am. Uh, there's so much that I am capable of because you've also done so much. Oh, thank you. That, that means a lot. That's really nice. And I feel like I, I can only like say like I just hope people can just be themselves, right? Like Preach. being queer yeah. is yeah, being queer is is a very important part of who I am. But I hope it's like one of you know 
50 interesting things about me right mm-hmm. but I think back then it was like such a like that was like what people knew me as um and uh and and you know and I'm happy to be that because being queer is amazing um but like now I'm just so happy that there's so many queer people in the spotlight <laughs> because there's uh you know, it's just, it, you don't have to be the one, right? I, I had a, a standing joke before where it's like, I would walk into the room and be so gay, you know? And now <laughs> it's like, there's so many folks doing amazing work. And, you know, I just hope that uh, people have seen like how much we've grown and, um, yeah. you know, and I, and I'd love, I'd love that people are coming out so much earlier, right? I have nephews and nieces who uh, come out to me at like, it was early, I think the earliest who's ever come out to me was 12. And they tell me on text message because that's what we do. We don't call each other on the phone anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents, like when that teen like comes out later in life to the whole family, my mom will say, did you know? And I was like, yeah, I've known for like years. They told me like on text when they were 12. Um, and she's like, how do you, how did they tell you? I was like, I don't know. I guess I'm like the cool uncle. I don't know. Um, but so many queer people are coming out and, like if if I helped in any way by just being who I am and existing, then that's beautiful. That's wonderful. I'm happy to do that. And I hope that like queer people will always continue to just be their truest and authentic selves so that future generations will always know that they they can and should be, you know, their truest and most authentic selves as well. Absolutely. Ah well as we close, um, with everything happening and I guess just also in the context of this conversation, is there any like final or last words that you want to share with our listeners? Um, I guess in this moment today. Um, Sure. You know, talking about things in more, most generalist forms. um, I hope people continue to be very critical about what we are exposed to or what we learn or what we're taught and to, always question whose narratives are being centered. Um, I think it's so hard for uh, for people of historically marginalized groups to be heard, to be seen, um, to be understood, to be studied, to be written about. Um, if we continue to, to hear the, the colonizer's narrative or the, uh, the, the dominant voice, um, in in learning about those groups. Um, and so I just hope that people will always critically challenge like who who is the one who is sharing the narrative. You know, there's an old African proverb, um, and I might get it wrong, but it it goes something like, until the lioness learns how to write, the hunter will always be viewed as the hero. Um, and you know, I hope that's something that we always remember, you know, and relating that um specifically to being Filipino or Filipino-American is because we've been colonized for so long by two different entities that essentially infiltrated most aspects of being Filipino in some ways. Um, We have learned that the colonizer is the hero. Um, And whether we believe it cognitively anymore, um, if you grew up with those messages, we may have internalized it. And that's what colonial mentality is. Uh, and so I hope folks can um, work really hard to uh, dispel and even um, release any of those colonized messages that might still be lingering within. 
Um, the messages that tell you that you're not beautiful enough, the messages that told you that you're not smart enough, that you're incapable, that you're not good enough, um, that that's the colonizer winning. And so I hope people learn to do what I call externalize oppression instead of internalize oppression, meaning that you can see situations and say like, no, that's racism, that's homophobia, that's sexism, that's oppression operating. I need to release it. Uh, and instead, internalize all the positive messages that your body, your heart, your mind, your soul needs to hear. Um, so the messages of like, I am worthy, I'm loved, I am special, I am capable, I am beautiful, uh, I am part of something really special. And so I hope people continue to do that instead of learning all the and relearning all the negative messages that make us suffer. So that's that's all. And I hope people like critically unpack everything that we do to uh, to, to be complicit to oppression um, and uh, and have really hard conversations, um, even when you don't want to have them, because sometimes those are the, the best conversations to have. Absolutely. Dr. Nadal, thank you so much for being on our show. I I can't tell you enough. And like, I was really excited for you to be on the show just to tell you like, you've really made such an impact on our community. And just like, even for me personally, oh, I'm getting emotional. Because mm. I, I don't think it would have been, I don't think I would have been able to heal, you know, if I didn't know that healing was a possibility. So thank you. And I don't think this podcast would even exist. Thank you. You're like a big Gosh. deal. You're, <laughs> You're a big, big deal. deal. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. Tell my kids. My kids. My kids don't think so. They're like, why do people like me, Papa? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> They're like, why do people stop you? Yeah, they'll get it eventually. Eventually, or, yeah. or it's fine. Or it's fine because like I, I'm happy to be their Papa. That's all. Well, thank you again, Dr. Nadal. Me searchers, give it up for Dr. Nadal. Hey everyone. And thank you, me searchers, for tuning in. If you're not a me searcher, follow us at Me Search Podcast to be a me searcher. And then also check us out online at mesearchpodcast.com. And as always, we're gonna get to the bottom of things. This is me search, folks. Ooh. Ooh.